a vindication of the Protestant doctrine concerning justification, and of its preachers and professors, from the unjust charge of antinomianism. In a letter from the author to a minister in the country. By Robert Rayo, the Younger. Your earnest desire of information about some difference amongst nonconformists in London, whereof you hear so much by flying reports, and profess you know so little of the truth thereof, is because of this writing. You know, that not many months ago there was fair-like appearance of unity betwixt the two most considerable parties on that side, and their differences having been rather in practice than principle, about church order and communion, seemed easily reconcilable, where a spirit of love, and of a sound mind, was at work. But how short was the calm? For quickly arose a greater storm from another quarter, and a quarrel began upon higher points, even on no less than the doctrine of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and the justification of a sinner by faith alone. Some think, that the ray-printing of Dr. Crisp's book gave the first rise to it. But we must look farther back for its true spring. It is well known, but little considered, what a great progress Arminianism had made in this nation, before the beginning of the Civil War. And surely it hath lost little since it ended. What can be the reason, why the very parliaments in the reign of James I and Charles I were so alarmed with Arminianism, as may be read in history, and is remembered by old men, and that now for a long time there hath been no talk, no fear of it, as if Arminianism were dead and buried, and no man knows where its grave is. Is not the true reason to be found in its universal prevailing in the nation? But that which concerns our case, is, that the middle way betwixt the Arminians and the Orthodox, had been espoused, and strenuously defended and promoted by some nonconformists, of great note for piety and parts, and usually such men, that are for middle ways and points of doctrine, have a greater kindness for that extreme they go halfway to, than for that which they go halfway from. And the notions thereof were imbibed by a great many students, who labored through the iniquity of the times under the great disadvantage of the one of grave and sound divines, to direct and assist their studies at universities, and therefore contented themselves with studying such English authors as had gone in a path untrod, both by our predecessors, and by the Protestant universities abroad. These notions have been preached, and wrote against, by several divines amongst themselves, and the different opinions have been, till of late, managed with some moderation, to which our being all borne down by persecution, did somewhat contribute. It is a sad, but true observation, that no contentions are more easily kindled, more fiercely pursued, and more hardly composed, than those of divines, sometimes from their zeal for truth, and sometimes from worse principles, that may act in them, as well as in other men. The subject of the controversy is, about the justifying grace of God in Jesus Christ. Owned it is by both, and both fear it be abused either by turning it into wantonness, hence the noise of antinomianism, or by corrupting it with a mixture of works, hence the fears, on the other hand, of Arminianism. Both parties disown the name cast upon them. The one will not be called Arminians and the other hate both name and thing of antinomianism truels so called. Both sometimes say the same thing, and profess their assent to the doctrinal articles of the Church of England, to the Confession of Faith and Catechisms composed at Westminster, and to the harmony of the confessions of all the Reformed Churches, in these doctrines of grace. And, if both be candid in this profession, it is very strange, that there should be any controversy amongst them. Let us therefore, first, 
take a view of the parties, and then of their principles. As to the parties suspected of antinomianism and libertinism in this city, it is plain, that the churches wherein they are concerned, are more strict and exact in trying of them that offer themselves unto their communion, as to their faith and holiness, before their admitting them, in the engagements laid on them to a gospel walking at their admission, and in their inspection over them afterwards. As to their conversations, they are generally of the more regular and exact frame, and the fruits of holiness in their lives, to the praise of God, and honor of the gospel, cannot with modesty be denied. Is it not unaccountable, to charge a people with licentiousness, when the chargers cannot deny, and some cannot well bear the strictness of their walk? It is commonly said, that it is only their principles, and the tendency of them to loose walking, that they blame. But, waiving it at present, it seems not fair to charge a people with licentious doctrines, when the professors thereof are approved of for their godliness, and when they do sincerely profess, that their godliness began with, and is promoted by the faith of their principles. Let it not be mistaken, if I here make a comparison betwixt papists and Protestants. The latter did always profess the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This was blasphemy in the papists' ears. They still did, and do cry out against it, as a licentious doctrine, and destructive of good works. Many sufficient answers have been given unto this unjust charge. But to my purpose the wonder was, that the papists were not convinced by the splendid holiness of the old believers, and by the visible truth of their holy practice, and their professing, that as long as they lived in the blindness and darkness of popery, they were profane, and that as soon as God revealed the gospel to them, and had wrought in them the faith thereof, they were sanctified, and led other lives. So witnessed the noble Lord Cabham, who suffered in King Henry five time, above an hundred years before Luther. His words at his examination, before the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his clergy, were these as for that virtuous man, Wycliffe, for with his doctrine he was charged, whose judgments ye so highly disdain, I shall say of my part, both before God and man, that before I knew the despised doctrine of his, I never abstained from sin, but since I learned therein to fear my Lord God, it hath otherwise, I trust, been with me. So much grace could I never find in all your glorious instructions. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume 1 page 640, Column 2. Edited 1664. And since I am on that excellent book, I entreat you to read Mr. Patrick Hamilton's little treatise, to which Frith doth preface, and Fox doth add some explication volume 2 page 181 to 192, where ye will find the old plain Protestant truth about law and gospel, delivered without any school terms. To this, add, in your reading, in the same volume page 497 to 509. Harris's and errors falsely charged on Tyndall's writings, where we will see the old faith of the saints in its simplicity, and the old craft and cunning of the anti-Christian party, in slandering the truth. I must, for my part, confess that these plain declarations of gospel truth have a quite other favor with me, than the dry insipid accounts thereof given by pretenders to human wisdom. But passing these things, let us look to principles and that with respect to their native and regular influence on sanctification. And I am willing that that should determine the matter, next to the consonance of the principles themselves to the word of God. It can be no doctrine of God, that is not according to godliness. 
Some think that if good works and holiness and repentance be allowed no room in justification, that there is no room to left for them in the world and in the practice of believers. So hard seems it to be to some to keep in their eye that certain fixed bounds betwixt justification and sanctification. There is no difference betwixt a justified and a sanctified man, for he is always the same person that partakes of these privileges. But justification and sanctification differ greatly, in many respects, as is commonly known. But to come a little closer the party here suspected of antinomianism, do confidently protest, before God, angels, and men, that they espouse no new doctrine about the grace of God and justification, and the other coincident points, but what the reformers at home and abroad did teach, and all the Protestant churches do own. And that in some is that a law condemned sinner is freely justified by God's grace, through the redemption, that is in Jesus Christ, that he is justified only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to him by God of his free grace, and received by faith alone as an instrument, which faith is the gift of the same grace. For guarding against licentiousness, they constantly teach, out of God's word, that without holiness no man can see God that all that believe trouble on Jesus Christ, as they are justified by the sprinkling of his blood, so are they sanctified by the ephion of his spirit, that all that boast of their faith in Christ, and yet live after their own lusts, and the course of this world, have no true faith at all, but do, in their profession, and contradicting practice, blaspheme the name of God, and the doctrine of his grace, and continuing so, shall perish with a double destruction, beyond that of the openly profane, that make no profession. And when they find any such in their communion, which is exceeding rarely, they cast them out as dead branches. They teach, that as the daily study of sanctification is a necessary exercise to all that are in Christ, so the rule of their direction therein, is the holy spotless law of God in Christ's hand, that the Holy Ghost is the beginner and advancer of this work, and faith in Jesus Christ the great means thereof that no man can be holy till he be in Christ, and united to him by faith, and that no man is true in Christ, but he is thereby sanctified. They preach the law, to condemn all flesh out of Christ, and to show thereby to people the necessity of betaking themselves to him for salvation. See the save our words of blessed Tyndall, called the Apostle of England, in his letter to John Frith, written January 1533, Book of Martyrs, Volume 2 page 308. Expound the law tool, and open the veil of Moses, to condemn all flesh, and prove all men sinners, and all deeds under the law, before mercy have taken away the condemnation thereof, to be sin, and damnable, and then as a faithful minister, set abroach the mercy of our Lord Jesus, and let the wounded consciences drink of the water of him. And then shall your preaching be with power, and not as the hypocrites. And the Spirit of God shall work with you, and all consciences shall bear record unto you, and feel that it is so. And all doctrine that cast the mist on these two, to shadow and hide them, I mean the law of God, and mercy of Christ, that resist you with all your power. And so do we. What is there in all this to be offended with? Is not this enough to vindicate our doctrine from any tendency to licentiousness? I am afraid that there are some things, wherein we differ more than they think fit yet to express. And I shall guess at them. 1. The first is about the imputed righteousness of Christ. This righteousness of Christ, 
in his active and passive obedience, hath been asserted by Protestant divines, to be not only the procuring and meritorious cause of our justification, for this the papists own, but the matter, as the imputation of it is the form of our justification, though I think that our logical terms are not so adapted for such divine mysteries. But whatever propriety or impropriety be in such school terms, the common Protestant doctrine hath been, that a convinced sinner seeking justification, must have nothing in his eye but this righteousness of Christ, as God proposes nothing else to him, and that God in justifying a sinner, accepts him in his righteousness only, when he imputes it to him. Now, about the imputed righteousness of Christ some say, that it belongs only to the person of Christ he was under the law, and bound to keep it for himself, that he might be a fit mediator, without spot or blemish. That it is a qualification in a mediator, rather than a benefit acquired by him, to be communicated to his people. For they will not allow this personal righteousness of Christ, to be imputed to us any otherwise than in the merit of it, as purchasing for us a more easy law of grace, in the observation, whereof they place all our justifying righteousness understanding hereby our own personal inherent holiness, and nothing else. They hold, that Christ died to merit this of the Father, to wit that we might be justified upon easier terms under the gospel, than those of the law of innocency. Instead of justification by perfect obedience, we are now to be justified by our own evangelical righteousness, made up of faith, repentance, and sincere obedience. And if we hold not with them in this, they tell the world we are enemies to evangelical holiness, slighting the practice of all good works, and allowing our hearers to live as they list. Thus they slander the preachers of free grace, because we do not place justification in our own inherent holiness, but in Christ's perfect righteousness, imputed to us upon our believing in Him. Which faith, we teach, purifies the heart, and always inclines to holiness of life. Neither do we hold any faith, to be true and saving, that doth not show itself by good works, without which no man is, or can be justified, either in his own conscience, or before men. But it doth not hence follow that we cannot be justified in the sight of God by faith only, as the Apostle Paul asserts the latter and the Apostle James the former, in a good agreement. 2. There appears to be some difference, or misunderstanding of one another, about the true notion and nature of justifying faith. Divines commonly distinguish betwixt the direct act of faith, and the reflex act. The direct act is properly justifying and saving faith, by which a lost sinner comes to Christ, and relies upon him for salvation. The reflex act is the looking back of the soul upon a former act of faith. A rational creature can reflect upon his own acts, whether they be acts of reason, faith, or unbelief. A direct act of saving faith is that, by which a lost sinner goes out of himself to Christ for help, relying upon him only for salvation. A reflex act arises from the sense, that faith gives of its own inward act, upon a serious review. The truth and sincerity of which is further cleared up to the conscience, by the genuine fruits of an unfeigned faith, appearing to all men in our good lives, and holy conversation. But for as plain as these things be, yet we find we are frequently mistaken by others and we wonder at the mistake, for we dare not ascribe to some learned and good men, the principles of ignorance, or willfulness, from whence mistakes in plain cases usually proceed. When we do press sinners to come to Christ by a direct act of faith, consisting in a humble reliance upon Him for mercy and pardon, 
they will under stand us, whether we will or not, of a reflex act of faith, by which a man knows and believes, that his sins are pardoned, and that Christ is his, when they might easily know that we may know such thing. Mr. Walter Marshall, in his excellent book, lately published, hath largely opened this, and the true controversy of this day, though it is eight or nine years since he died. 3. We seem to differ about the interest, and room, and place, that faith hath in justification. That we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, is so plainly a New Testament truth, that no man pretending never so barely to the Christian name, denies it. The Papists own it, and the Socinians, and Arminians, and all, own it. But how different are the senses of it? And indeed you cannot more speedily and certainly judge of the spirit of a man, than by his real inward sense of this phrase, if you could reach it, a sinner is justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Some say, that faith in Jesus Christ justifies as it is a work, by the decretier, as if it came in the room of perfect obedience, required by the law. Some, that faith justifies, as it is informed and animated by charity. So the papists, who plainly confound justification and sanctification. Some say that faith justifies, as it is a fulfilling of the condition of the new covenant, if thou believes, thou shalt be saved. Nay, they will not hold there, but they will have this faith to justify, as it hath a principle and fitness in it to dispose to sincere obedience. The plain old Protestant doctrine is that the place of faith in justification is only that of a hand or instrument, receiving the righteousness of Christ, for which only we are justified. So that though great scholars do often confound themselves and others, in their disputations about faith justifying a sinner, every poor plain believer hath the marrow of this mystery feeding his heart, and he can readily tell you, that to be justified by faith, is to be justified by Christ's righteousness apprehended by faith. 4. We seem to misunderstand one another about the two Adams, and especially the latter. See Romans 5, 12. To the end. In that excellent scripture a comparison is instituted, which if we did duly understand, and agree in, we should not readily differ in the main things of the gospel. The apostle there tell us, that the first Adam stood in the room of all his natural posterity. He had their stock in his hand. While he stood they stood in him, when he fell, they fell with him. By his fall he derives an in death to all them that spring from him by natural generation. This is the sad side. But he tells us in opposition thereto, and in comparing therewith, that Christ, the second man, is the new head of the redeemed world. He stands in their room his obedience is theirs, and he communicates to his spiritual offspring the just contrary to what the first sinful Adam doth to his natural offspring, righteousness instead of guilt and sin, life instead of death, justification instead of condemnation, and eternal life instead of hell deserved. So that I think the third, fourth, and fifth chapters of the epistle to the Romans, for the mystery of justification, and the sixth, seventh, and eighth, for the mystery of sanctification deserve our deep study. But what say others about Christ being the second Adam? We find them unwilling to speak of it, and when they do, it is quite alien from the scope of the Apostle in that chapter. Thus to us they seem to say, that God as a rector, ruler, governor, hath resolved to save men by Jesus Christ, that the rule of this government is the gospel, as a new law of grace that Jesus Christ is set at the head of this rectoral government, 
that in that state he sits in glory, ready and able, out of his purchase and merits, to give justification and eternal life to all, that can bring good evidence of their having complied with the terms and conditions of the law of grace. Thus they antedate the last day, and hold forth Christ as a judge, rather than a savior. Luther was wont to warn people of this distinction frequently, in his comment on the epistle to the Galatians. And no other headship to Christ do we find some willing to admit, but what belongs to his kingly office. As for the his heretorship, and being the second Adam, and a public person, some treat it with contempt. I have heard that Dr. Thomas Goodwin was in his youth an Arminian, or at least inclining that way, but was by the Lord's grace brought off, by Dr. Subs clearing up to him the same point, of Christ being the head and representative of all his people. Now, though we maintain steadfastly this headship of Jesus Christ, yet we say not, that there is an actual partaking of his fullness of grace, till we be in him by faith, though this faith is also given us on Christ's behalf, Philippians 1. 29, and we believe through grace, Acts 18, 27. And we know no grace, we can call nothing grace, we care for no grace, but what comes from this head, the Savior of the body. But so much shall serve to point forth the main things of difference and mistakes. Is it not a little provoking, that some are so captious, that no minister can preach in the hearing of some, of the freedom of God's grace, of the imputation of Christ's righteousness? of soul and single believing on him for righteousness and eternal life, of the impossibility of a natural man's doing any good work before he be in Christ, of the impossibility of the mixing of man's righteousness and works with Christ's righteousness in the business of justification, and several other points, but he is immediately called or suspected to be an antinomian? If we say that faith in Jesus Christ is neither work, nor condition, nor qualification, in justification, but as a mere instrument, receiving as an empty hand receives the freely given alms the righteousness of Christ, and that, in its very act, it is the renouncing of all things but the gift of grace the fire is kindled. So that it has come to that, as Mr. Christopher Fowler said, that he that will not be anti-Christian must be called an antinomian. Is there a minister in London who did not preach, some twenty, some thirty years ago, according to their standing, that same doctrine now by some called antinomian? Let not Dr. Crisp's book be looked upon as the standard of our doctrine. There are many good things in it, and also many expressions in it that we generally dislike. It is true, that Mr. Burgess and Mr. Rutherford wrote against antinomianism, and against some that were both antinomians and Arminians. And it is no less true that they wrote against the Arminians, and did hate the new scheme of divinity, so much now contended for, and to, which we owe all our present contentions. I am persuaded that if these godly and sound divines were on the present stage, they would be as ready to draw their pens against two books lately printed against Dr. Crisp, as ever they were ready to write against the doctor's book. Truth is to be defended by truth, but error is often and unhappily opposed by error under truth's name. But what shall we do in this case? What shall we do for peace with our brethren? Shall we lie still under their undeserved reproaches, and, for keeping the peace, silently suffer others to beat us unjustly? If it were our own personal concern, we should bear it, if it were only their charging us with ignorance, weakness, and being unstudied divines, as they have used liberally to call all that have not learned, and dare not believe their new divinity, we might easily pass it by, or put it up. 
but when we see the pure gospel of Christ corrupted, and an Armenian gospel new vamped, and obtruded on people, to the certain peril of the souls of such as believe it, and our ministry reflected upon, which should be dearer to us than our lives, can we be silent? As we have a charge from the Lord, to deliver to our people what we have received from Him, so, as He calls and enables, we are not to give place by subjection, not for an hour, to such as creep in, not only to spy out, but to destroy, not so much the gospel liberty, as the gospel salvation we have in Christ Jesus, and to bring us back under the yoke of legal bondage. And indeed these in that epistle to the Galatians and ours has a great affinity. Is it desired that we should forbear to make a free offer of God's grace in Christ to the worst of sinners? This cannot be granted by us, for this is the gospel faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation and therefore worthy of all our preaching of it, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and the chief of them, 1 Timothy 1, 15. This was the apostolic practice, according to their Lord's command Mark 16, 15, 16 Luke 24. 47. They begin at Jerusalem, where the Lord of life was wickedly slain by them, and yet life in and through his blood was offered to, and accepted and obtained by, many of them. Every believer's experience witnesses to this, that every one, that believes on Jesus Christ acts that faith, as the chief of sinners. Every man, that sees himself rightly thinks so of himself, and therein thinks not amiss. God only knows who is truly the greatest sinner and every humbled sinner will think that he is the man. Shall we tell men, that unless they be holy, they must not believe on Jesus Christ? That they must not venture on Christ for salvation till they be qualified, and fit to be received and welcomed by him. This were to forbear preaching the gospel at all, or to forbid all men to believe on Christ. For never was any sinner qualified for Christ. He is well qualified for us 1 Corinthians 1, 30. But a sinner out of Christ hath no qualification for Christ but sin and misery. Whence should we have any better, but in and from Christ? Nay, suppose an impossibility, that a man were qualified for Christ, I boldly assert that such a man would not, nor could ever believe on Christ, for faith is a lost, helpless, condemned sinner's casting himself on Christ for salvation, and the qualified man is no such person. Shall we warn people that they should not believe on Christ too soon? It is impossible that they should do it too soon. Can a man obey the great gospel command too soon? 1 John 3, 23, or do the great work of God too soon? John 6, 28, 29. A man may too soon think that he is in Christ, and that is when it is not so indeed, and this we frequently teach. But this is but an idle dream and not faith. A man may too soon fancy that he hath faith. But I hope he cannot act faith too soon. If any should say, a man may be holy too soon, how would that saying be reflected upon? And yet it is certain, that though no man can be too soon holy, because he cannot too soon believe on Christ, which is the only spring of true holiness, yet he may, and many do, set about the study of that he counts holiness too soon, that is, before the tree be changed, Matthew 12, 33, 34, 35, before he have the new heart, Ezekiel 36, 26, 27, and the Spirit of God dwelling in him, which is only God by faith in Christ, Galatians 3, 14, 
and therefore all this man's studying of holiness is not only vain labor, but acting of sin. And if this study, and these endeavors, be managed as commonly they are, to obtain justification before God, they are the more wicked works still. And because this point is needful to be known, I would give you some testimonies for it. Doctrine of the Church of England, in her 39 articles, Article 13, works done before the grace of Christ, and the inspiration of His Spirit, are not pleasant to God, for as much as they spring not a faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men need to receive grace, or as the school authors say deserve grace of congruity. Yea, rather, for that they are not done, as God hath willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not but they have the nature of sin. So Confession of Faith, Chapter 16, Article 7. Calvin. Institutes Lib. 3, Cap. 15, Sec. 6, Lace of He, speaking of the Popish school may have found out I know not what moral good works, whereby men are made acceptable to God, before they are engrafted into Christ. As if the scripture lied when it said, they are all in death, who have not the Son, 1 John 5, 12. If they be in death, how can they beget matter of life? As if it were of no force, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, as if evil trees could bring forth good fruit read the rest of that section. On the contrary, the Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 7, say boldly, Whosoever shall say that all works done before justification, howsoever they be done, are true sin, and deserve the hatred of God, let him be anathema. And to give you one more bellowing of the beast, wounded by the light of the gospel, see the same counsel, session 6, canon 11, see quis dixerit, gratiam qua justificamur, as tantum favoritum die, anathema sit. This is fearful blasphemy, saith Dr. Downham, Bishop of Londonderry, in his orthodox book of justification, lib. 3, cap. 1, where he saith, that the Hebrew words, which in the Old Testament signify the grace of God, do always signify favor, and never grace inherent and above fifty testimonies may be brought from the New Testament, to prove that by God's grace his favor is still meant. But what was good Church of England doctrine at and after the Reformation, cannot now go down with some Arminianizing nonconformists. If, then, Nothing will satisfy our quarreling brethren but I their silence as to the main points of the gospel which we believe, and live by the faith of, and look to be saved in, which we have for many years preached, with some seals of the Holy Ghost and converting sinners unto God, and in building them up in holiness and comfort, by the faith and power of them, which also we vowed to the Lord, to preach to all that will hear us, as long as we live, in the day when we gave up ourselves to serve God with our spirit in the gospel of the Son of I there the silence, or the swallowing down of our mind and schemes of the gospel, contrary to the New Testament, and unknown to the Reformed churches in their greatest purity, be the only terms of peace with our brethren, we must then maintain our peace with God and our own consciences, in the defense of plain gospel truth, and our harmony with the Reformed churches, and in the comfort of these bear their enmity and though it be usual with them to vilify, and contemn such as differ from them, for their fewness, weakness, and want of learning, yet they might know that the most learned, and godly in the Christian world have maintained, and defended the same doctrine we stand for for some ages. The grace of God will never want, for it can and will furnish defenders of it. 
England hath been blessed with a brave Wardine, an Archbishop of Canterbury, against the Pelagians, a twist and aims against the Arminians. And though they that contend with us would separate their cause altogether from that of these two pests of the Church of Christ, I mean Pelagius and Arminius, yet judicious observers cannot but already perceive a coincidence, and do fear more, when either the force of argument shall drive them out of their lurking holes, or when they shall think fit to discover their secret sentiments, which yet we but guess at. Then, as we shall know better what they would be at, so it is very like that they will then find enemies in many, whom they have seduced by their craft, and do yet seem to be in their camp, and will meet with opposers, both at home and abroad, that they think not of. Our doctrine of the justification of a sinner by the free grace of God in Jesus Christ, however it be misrepresented and reflected upon, is yet undeniably recommended by four things. 1. It is a doctrine save ouri and precious unto all serious godly persons. Dr. Ames's observation holds good as to all the Arminian divinity, that it is contra communum sensum fidlium, against the common sense of believers. And though this be an argument of little weight with them that value more the judgment of the scribes, and the wise, and disputers of this world, 1 Cur. 1, 18, 19, 20, 21, then of all the godly, yet the Spirit of God by John gives us this same argument, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God he that knows God hears us, he that is not of God hears not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, 1 John 4, 5, 6. How evident is it that several who, by education, or an unsound ministry, having had their natural enmity against the grace of God strengthened, when the Lord by his spirit hath broke in upon their hearts, and hath raised a serious soul exercise about their salvation, they are turning to God in Christ, and their turning from Armenianism, hath begun together. And some of the greatest champions for the grace of God have been persons thus dealt with, as we might instance. And as it is thus with men at their conversion, so is it found afterward that still, as it is well with them in their inner man, so doth the doctrine of grace still appear more precious and save ouri. On the other part, all the ungodly and unrenewed have a dislike and disrelish of this doctrine, and are all for the doctrine of doing, and love to hear it, and, in their sorry exercise, are still for doing their own business and salvation, though they be nothing, and can do nothing, but sin, and destroy themselves. 2. It is the doctrine only, by which a convinced sinner can be dealt with effectually. When a man is awakened, and brought to that, that all must be brought to, or to worse, what shall I do to be saved? We have the apostolic answer to it, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house, Acts 16, 30. 31. This answer is so old, that with many it seems out of date. But it is still, and will ever be, fresh, and new, and save ouri, and the only resolution of this grand case of conscience, as long as conscience and the world lasts. No wit or art of man will ever find a crack or flaw in it, or devise another or a better answer, nor can any but this alone heal rightly the wound of an awakened conscience. Let us set this man to seek resolution in this case of some masters in our Israel. According to their principles, they must say to him, Repent, and mourn for your known sins, and leave them and loathe them, and God will have mercy on you. Alas if the poor man my heart is hard, and I cannot repent aright, yea, 
I find my heart more hard and vile than when L was secure in sin. If you speak to this man of qualifications for Christ, he knows nothing of them, if of sincere obedience, his answer is native and ready, obedience is the work of a living man, and sincerity is only in a renewed soul. Sincere obedience is therefore as impossible to a dead unrenewed sinner as perfect obedience is. Why should not the right answer be given, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Tell him what Christ is, what he hath done and suffered to obtain eternal redemption for sinners, and that according to the will of God and his Father. Give him a plain downright narrative of the gospel salvation brought out by the Son of God, tell him the history and mystery of the gospel plainly. It may be the Holy Ghost will work faith thereby, as he did in those first fruits of the Gentiles, Acts 10, 41. If he ask what warrant he hath to believe on Jesus Christ? Tell him that he hath utter indispensable necessity for it, for without believing on him he must perish eternally, that he hath God's gracious offer of Christ and all his redemption, with a promise, that upon accepting the offer by faith, Christ and salvation with him is his, that he hath God's express commandment, to believe on Christ's name 1 John 3, 23, and that he should make conscience of obeying it as well as any command in the moral law. Tell him of Christ's ability and goodwill to save, that no man was ever rejected by him that cast himself upon him, that desperate cases are the glorious triumphs of his art of saving. Tell him that there is no midst between faith and unbelief, that there is no excuse for neglecting the one, and continuing in the other, that believing on the Lord Jesus for salvation is more pleasing to God than all obedience to his law, and that unbelief is the most provoking to God, and the most damning to man, of all sins. Against the greatness of his sins, the curse of the law, and the severity of God as judge, there is no relief to be held forth to him but the free and boundless grace of God in the merit of Christ's satisfaction by the sacrifice of himself. If he should say, what is it to believe on Jesus Christ? As to this, I find no such question in the word, but that all did some way understand the notion of it the Jews, that did not believe on him John 6, 28, 29, 30. The chief priests and Pharisees John 7, 48, the blind man John 9, 35. When Christ asked him, Believest thou on the Son of God? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe on him? Immediately, when Christ had told him verse 37, he saith not, What is it to believe on him? But, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him, and so both professed and acted faith in him. So the father of the lunatic Mark 9, 23, 24, and the eunuch Acts 8, 37. They all, both Christ's enemies and his disciples, knew that faith in whom was a believing that the man Jesus of Nazareth was the sword of God, the Messiah, and Savior of the world, so as to receive, and look for salvation in his name Acts 4, 12. This was the common report published by Christ and his apostles and disciples, and known by all that heard it. If he yet asks, what he is to believe? You tell him that he is not called to believe that he is in Christ, and that his sins are pardoned, and he a justified man, but that he is to believe God's record concerning Christ, and this record is, that God gives that is, offers to us eternal life in the Son Jesus Christ, 1 John 5, 10, 11, 12, and that all that with the heart believe this report, and rest their souls on these glad tidings, shall be saved, Romans 10. 9, 10, 11. 
and thus he is to believe, that he may be justified, Galatians 2, 16. If he still says that this believing is barred, this is a good doubt, but easily resolved. It bespeaks a man deeply humbled. Anybody may see his own impotence, to obey the law of God fully, but few find the difficulty of believing. For his resolution, ask him, what it is he finds makes believing difficult to him. Is it unwillingness to be justified and saved? Is it unwillingness to be so saved by Jesus Christ, to the praise of God's grace in him, and to the voiding of all boasting in himself? This he will surely deny. Is it a distrust of the truth of the gospel record? This he dare not own. Is it a doubt of Christ's ability or goodwill to save? This is to contradict the testimony of God in the gospel. Is it because he doubts of an interest in Christ and his redemption? You tell him that believing on Christ makes up the interest in him. If you say that he cannot believe on Jesus Christ, because of the difficulty of the acting this faith, and that a divine power is needful to draw it forth, which he finds not, you tell him, that believing in Jesus Christ is no work, but arresting on Jesus Christ, and that this pretense is as unreasonable as that if a man wearied with a journey, and who is not able to go one step further, should argue, I am so tired that I am not able to lie down, when indeed he can neither stand nor go. The poor wearied sinner can never believe on Jesus Christ till he finds he can do nothing for himself, and in his first believing doth always apply himself to Christ for salvation, as a man hopeless and helpless in himself. And by such reasonings with him from the gospel, the Lord will as he hath often done convey faith, and joy, and peace, by believing. 3. This doctrine of free justification by faith alone hath this advantage, that it suits all men's spirits and frame in their serious approaches to God and worship. Men may think and talk boldly of inherent righteousness, and of its worth and value, of good works, and frames, and dispositions but when men present themselves before the Lord, and have any discoveries of His glory, all things in themselves will disappear, and be looked upon as nothing. Zophar though the hottest speaker of Job's friends, did yet speak rightly to him, for thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in thine eyes. But, oh that God would speak! Job 11, 4, 5 And so Job found it, when God displayed his glory to him, and that only in the works of creation and providence, chapter 38, 39 he then changed his note, Job 40, 4, 5, and 42, 2-6. So was it with Isaiah, chap 6, 5, till pardoning grace was imparted to him. No man can stand before this holy Lord God, with any peace and comfort, unless he have God himself to stay upon. His grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, can only preserve a man from being consumed, and the faith of it from being confounded. Hence we see the difference betwixt men's frame and their disputes and doctrine about these points, and their own sense and pleadings with God in prayer. 4. This doctrine of justification by faith without any mixtures of man, however, and by what names and titles soever they be dignified or distinguished, hath this undoubted advantage, that it is, that which all not judicially hardened and blinded do, or would or must betake themselves unto, when dying. How loath would men be to plead that cut on a deathbed, which they so stoutly stand up for with tongue and pen, when at ease, and that evil day far away. They seem to be jealous, lest God's grace and Christ's righteousness have too much room and men's works too little, 
in the business of justification. But was there ever a sensible dying person exercised with this jealousy as to himself? Even bloody Stephen Gardiner, when a dying, could answer Dr. Day, Bishop of Chichester, who offered comfort to him by this doctrine, What, my lord, will you open that gap now? Then, farewell altogether. To me, and such other in my case, you may speak it, but open this window to the people, then farewell altogether, Book of Martyrs, Volume 3. Page 450. In which words, he berated a conviction of the fitness of the doctrine to dying persons, and his knowledge, that it tended to the destroying the kingdom of Antichrist. As Fox, in the same Book of Martyrs, Volume 2 page 46, gives this as the reason of Luther's success against Popery, above all former attempts of preceding witnesses. But saith he Luther gave the stroke, and plucked down the foundation, and all by opening one vein, long hid before, wherein lies the touchstone of all truth and doctrine, as the only principal origin of our salvation, which is, our free justification, by faith only, in Christ the Son of God. Consider how it is with the most holy and eminent saints when dying. Did ye ever see, or hear any boasting of their works and performances? They may, and do own, to the praise of His grace, what they have been made to be, what they have been helped to do or suffer for Christ's sake. But when they draw near to the awful tribunal, what else is in their own heart, but only free grace, ransoming blood, and a well-ordered covenant in Christ the surety? They cannot bear to hear any make mention to them of their holiness, their own grace and attainments. In a word, the doctrine of conditions, qualifications, and pectoral government, and the distribution of rewards and punishments, according to the new law of grace, will make but an uneasy bed to a dying man's conscience, and will leave him in a very bad condition at present, and in dread of worse, when he is feeling, in his last agonies, that the wages of sin is death, if he cannot by faith add, but the gift of God is eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23. He is a wise and happy man, that anchors his soul on the rock, at which he can ride out the storm of death. Why should man contend for that in their life, that they know they must renounce at their death? Or neglect the truth now, that they must betake themselves unto then? Why should a man build a house, which he must leave in a storm, or be buried in its ruins? Many architects have attempted to make a sure house of their own righteousness but it is without a foundation, and must fall, or be thrown down sorrowfully by the foolish builder, which is the better way. It is a great test of the truth of the doctrine about the way of salvation, when it is generally approved of by sensible dying men. And what the universal sense of all such in this case is, as to the righteousness of Christ, and their own, is obvious to any man. He was an ingenuous Balaamite, who being himself a papist, said to a Protestant, Our religion is best to live in, yours best to die in. But notwithstanding of these great advantages and they are but a few of many, that this doctrine is attended with, there are not a few disadvantages it labors under, which though they are rather to its commendation than reproach, yet they do hinder its welcome and reception. As, 1. This doctrine is a spiritual mystery, and lies not level to a natural understanding, 1 Corinthians 2, 10, 14. Working for life, a man naturally understands, but believing for life, he understands not. To mend the old man, he knows, but to put on the new man by faith, is a riddle to him. 
the study of holiness, and to endeavor to square his life according to God's law, he knows a little of, though he can never do it, but to draw sanctification from Christ by faith, and to walk holily, in and through the force of the Spirit of Christ in the heart by faith, is mere canting to him. A new life he understands a little, but nothing of a new birth and regeneration, he never saw himself stark dead. Nay, not only it is unknown to the natural man, but he is by his natural state an enemy to it. He neither doth, nor can know it, nor approve of it. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 Wisdom that is, Christ's way of saving men revealed in the gospel is justified of all our children, and of them only, Matthew 11, 19, Luke 7, 29, 30, 35. This enmity in men to the wisdom of God, is because not only of this contempt of its ministry, but as a temptation to many ministers, to patch up and frame a gospel, that is more suited to, and taking with, and more easily understood by such, men, than the true gospel of Christ is. This Paul complains of in others, and vindicates himself from, 1 Corinthians 1, 17, and 2, 2. He warns others against it, Colossians 2, 8 2 Corinthians 11, 3, 4 Galatians 1, 6, 7, 8. 9. And it is certain, that doing for life is more suited to corrupt nature, than believing is. 2. Our opposers in this doctrine have the many for them, and against us, as they have old boasted John 7, 48. This they have no ground to glory in, though they do, nor we to be ashamed of the truth, because we cannot vie in numbers with them. With our opposers are all these sorts, and they make a great number, though I do not say or think, that all our opposers are to be ranked in any of these lists, for some, both godly and learned, may mistake us, and the truth, in this matter. 1. They have all the ignorant people, that know nothing either of law or gospel. They serve God, they say, but most falsely, and hope that God will be merciful to them, and save them. To all such, both the clear explication of God's law, and the mysteries of the gospel, are strange things. Yet sincere obedience they love to hear of, for all of them think there is some sincerity in their hearts, and that they can do somewhat. But of faith in Christ they have no knowledge, except by faith you understand a dream of being saved by Jesus Christ, though they know nothing of him, or of his way of saving men, nor of the way of being saved by him. 2. All formalists are on their side, people that place their religion in trifles, because they are strangers to the substance thereof. 3. All proud secure sinners are against us, that go about with the Jews, to establish their own righteousness, Romans 10, 3. The secure are whole, and see no need of the physician, the proud of physic at home, and despise that that came down from heaven. 4. All the zealous devout people in the natural religion, are utter enemies to the gospel. By a natural religion, I mean that that is the product of the remnants of God's image in fallen man, a little improved by the light of God's word. All such cannot endure to hear, that God's law must be perfectly fulfilled in every tittle of it, or no man can be saved by doing, that they must all perish forever, that have not the righteousness of a man that never sinned, who is also God over all blessed forever, to shelter and cover them from a holy God's anger, and to render them accepted of him that his righteousness is put on by the grace of God, and a man must betake himself to it, and receive it as a naked blushing sinner, 
that no man can do anything that is good, till gospel grace renew him, and make him first a good man. This they will never receive, but do still think that a man may grow good by doing good. 3. Natural reason is very fertile in its objections and cavils against the doctrine of the grace of God, and especially when this corrupt reason is polished by learning and strong natural parts. When there are many to broach such doctrine, and many so disposed to receive it, is it any wonder, that the gospel truth makes little progress in the world? Nay, were it not for the divine power that supports it, and the promises of its preservation, its enemies are so many and strong, and true friends so few and feeble, we might fear its perishing from the earth. But we know it is impossible. And if the Lord have a design of mercy to these nations, and hath a vein of his election, to dig up amongst us, we make no doubt, but the glory of Christ, as a crucified Savior, shall yet be displayed in the midst of us, to the joy of all that love his salvation, and to the shame of others. Isaiah 66, 5 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.